Just a note before we begin, if you are listening with little kids, and I know some of you have told me that you are, you may want to listen to this one by yourself first. Obviously, there's nothing explicit or R-rated in the Pilgrim's Progress, but just because of the subject matter covered in this one, I know when my son was small, I would have appreciated the heads up and the chance to kind of pre-screen it to make sure it was okay for him. And hey, since I'm already bugging you, I do want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I've been super excited by the response to it. Uh, I've done a good number of podcasts, and this one, Out of the Gate, has certainly been the most uh, successful and and well-received of all of them. And I'm very thankful for that. I'm glad that we're able to build some interest in our adaptation of this wonderful story that uh, John Bunyan gave to the world those centuries ago. If you'd like to help us out, obviously there are a few things you can do. Uh, First of all, it's subscribe anywhere you're listening hit the subscribe button even if you're like that's not how i do it i don't need that i've bookmarked the website or whatever it's just helpful uh it helps more people find it leave a review wherever you listen whether it's itunes or stitcher or Castbox or wherever leave a review an honest review of the podcast obviously patreon is important i'd say we have about half the podcast uh funded right now uh the expenses covered by the current patrons and uh, that's actually a really great start, and it's faster than I thought it would happen. Uh, but it would be nice to have the whole thing covered and see it be kind of self-sufficient. You can go to patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress uh, for that. Uh, and there's a number of different tiers with different rewards and things there. But of course, just, you know, helping the podcast is its own <laughs> reward or something. And of course, finally, uh, just pray that people will find it who need to hear it, people who need the encouragement or the challenge, the conviction, or people who have never even heard the gospel will hear it in this fresh way that somehow is still fresh 300 and some years later, and will consider the claims of of Jesus Christ and the truths of the gospel presented uh, in, in God's word. So if you can do one or any or all of those things, I would be really, really grateful. Honestly, it only takes about a minute and a half to to bang out a quick review of a podcast or to share a link on your Facebook page or your Instagram or whatever. And it could actually mean an eternal difference for somebody or at least a turning point in their life now. So uh, appreciate your help. Appreciate your listening. Appreciate your support. God bless you. And I hope you enjoy this fourth chapter of The Pilgrim's Progress. I am here for your house. I am not here to buy it, but to burn it to the ground. I have every right to burn this house. Do as I say and leave this place, never to return. I'll give you an hour to gather your belongings. Then I will burn it down over your head. Faithful stood frozen in the doorway for perhaps a quarter of an hour. Or, more accurately, a quarter of the hour he'd been granted. Behind him, the warm glow of his familiar cottage, the only home he'd ever known, called to him with empty promises of peace and safety. However, he knew the blackness of the night, foreboding as it was, offered a far better hope of survival. With one weapon broken and the other now lost in the tall grass and total darkness, Faithful would be all the less able to protect himself if the old man came back, when he came back. Clearly, he needed to leave. Breaking himself from the trance, he withdrew a few steps into the house and surveyed his meager possessions. When setting off on an odyssey over difficult and unfamiliar ground toward parts unknown, it was only wise to bring provisions. 
Of course, Faithful would have loved to fill a pack with food and supplies, but he already carried on his back the burden, larger and heavier than ever. There was no room for more, nor did he have the strength to carry it. But he ought to at least take a few minutes to find his sword, he decided. After all, who knew what kind of dangers lurked the way he was going? A few minutes of crawling through the grass on hands and knees in the light of a single lantern, though, proved fruitless. And the grass seemed to be growing drier by the moment, causing Faithful to fear he might accidentally burn his own house to the ground, and perhaps himself along with it, if he kept this up. In the end, as Faithful set out from his home in the purple pre-dawn glow, he was weighed down by nothing but his burden, carrying no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no sword, and no extra clothing. And yet, as the sun broke out above the horizon, he felt a sense of peace and promise. For the first time in a long time, Faithful felt like he would lack nothing. Hi, and Silver, and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come. John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory, as told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 4. Danger at the Gate Christian awoke refreshed. The evening before, he and Evangelist had hiked back to the way and made a little progress toward the wicket gate before the sun began to set. Then they built a fire, ate some smoked fish and bread from Evangelist's pack, and talked well into the night about the road ahead, its trials and dangers, as well as the blessings and comforts set in place by the king for pilgrims to enjoy along the way. They fell asleep under the stars while the fire slowly waned. Sitting up now and rubbing his eyes, Christian called the world back into focus. The coals were yet red and glowing, but Evangelist was nowhere to be seen. At first, Christian thought he may have ducked out as quickly and unexpectedly as he'd appeared, but then he saw his friend come strolling out of the woods, carrying three fish on a line. "'Where on earth did you catch those?' Christian asked. "'I haven't always been an evangelist.' He pulled a curved knife from his pack and began cleaning the haddock with quick efficiency. "'Let's just say I've fished every creek, stream, and pond in these woods. Some of them I've just about fished dry.' Christian rubbed his stiff shoulders and asked, do you think I might make it to the gate today? If you persevere, I don't see why not. It's not far at all. In fact, well, never mind. No, tell me. If one walks briskly and takes no side trips nor stops to rest, it's less than a day's journey from the City of Destruction to the Wicked Gate. Oh. Evangelist set two sticks parallel over the coals and began laying the fish across them to cook. He regarded Christian's downcast face. You wasted a day and a half on that foolish side trip, correct? Yes. Tell me this, does it make sense to waste the very best part of this beautiful day, pouting about it? He flashed Christian a crooked smile. I suppose not. Will it somehow bring glory to our king for you to replay your missteps again and again in your mind? <laughs> You're right, I'm done. That's good. We only do Beelzebub's work when we let our past failures halt our present progress. You know, I think I saw some chanterelles growing in a cluster just beyond those trees there. That would go nicely with this fish. I'll go have a look. Christian had walked all of 30 feet from their campsite when he saw the fine white mushrooms growing in abundance. He poked through them, looking for the best specimens. Tell me something, Christian, Evangelist called from the fire. 
Do you think I've strayed from the path? Christian followed the sprawling troop of mushrooms further down into a shady hollow, where they grew darker and thicker yet. I don't know, he called out. I can't really imagine you going astray. You don't have to imagine it, good Christian. If we remain friends long enough, you'll see it with your own eyes. All like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But God has laid on our Savior the iniquities of us all. Looking down, Christian suddenly felt his stomach turn. The mushrooms growing here in full shade looked slimy and smelled musty. He could almost see the poison spores floating up from beneath their caps, causing his head to swim. A dark feeling, a shadow of what he'd felt in the slough and on the mountain began to creep over him. Your little side excursion may have been born of wickedness, Christian, but God uses all things for our good and his. And in your going astray, you've seen that there is grace upon grace flowing from the hands, the feet, the side, the very heart of our Savior. If anyone says he has no sin, he's lying, even lying to himself. But when we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and with Jesus himself. Keep that light in your eye, dear pilgrim, and do not turn aside again to the right or to the left. Christian looked up in the direction of Evangelist's voice and saw the rising sun shining out on an inviting cluster. Stepping back into the light, he felt the oppressive weight lift from his spirit. You're taking long enough with that fungus, my friend. Have you found anything yet? Scooping up a handful of picture-perfect mushrooms, he answered, Aye, some real beauties. On my way. As he approached the fire, the smell of baking fish brought Christian's appetite to life with a vengeance, and the sight of his friend sitting there, tending their meal, warmed his heart. Let me see what you've got, Evangelist said, examining the fruit of Christian's hunt. You can't be too careful. Some false chanterelles grow deeper in these woods, very similar in appearance, but very deadly if eaten. But these are good, he smiled widely. Come and have breakfast. They sat across from one another, returned thanks to the king, and broke their fast. For several minutes they enjoyed the sight and sound of the fresh morning while they ate. You know, Evangelist said, breaking the silence, it was over a breakfast of fish that the Lord Jesus restored St. Peter after his fall into sin. Three times the Lord asked him, Do you love me? And three times Peter answered, Lord, you know I love you. Yes, I've shed a tear more than once while reading that passage. As have I, my friend, because it shows us his heart, the fact that our Lord did not respond, then why did you deny me? Or you have an odd way of showing your love, or even I don't believe you. No, he said, feed my lambs. Evangelist wiped his hands and stood. He uses broken people, Christian. People like me, like you. Will you walk with me a little further? Christian asked, swallowing down the last bite of fish. Maybe up to the gate? I'd love to, but I'm afraid I'm needed nearer the city today. I'll be praying for you, though, as I travel. Evangelist tucked two of the mushrooms into his pack and embraced Christian heartily. Then, smiling, he bid him Godspeed to the wicked gate. Christian girded up his loins and resumed his trip.
As the morning wore on, the way grew rather busy. Several times, strangers offered a greeting, tried to engage him in conversation, or asked a question about how to get to this place or that, but already having been duped by a slick-talking cheat and knowing that he was not fully safe on this side of the gate, Christian offered only the curtest of nods by way of response. He encountered children playing and a number of men and women walking toward the gate, some with their own burdens, big or small, and some without. A few of these pilgrims Christian passed along the side of the road, where it was wide enough to accommodate two, and a few passed him, moving with a speed Christian could only dream of, considering his enormous ponderous burden and general sense of fatigue. He also met with a number of people headed back toward the City of Destruction, most of them walking slowly, with an air of defeat. More than once, the blisters on his feet and the stiffness of his back almost convinced Christian to take a brief rest, but then he thought of the precious day he'd wasted and how close he must be, and instead, he pushed himself all the harder. The sun was nearing the top of the sky when Christian realized he hadn't seen any fellow travelers for some time. Here, the narrow path passed through a beautiful arbor, and alongside a very long and intricate trellis interwoven with vines of downy clematis. The sweet scent of almonds filled the air, and he could not help but take this as a good sign. The gate must be close. As he neared the end of the lattice, Christian was taken aback by a woman emerging from behind it. She walked slowly, her hips swaying sensually. Her dress was long, but the fabric thin, clinging to her form, rendered translucent by the sunlight. Moving to the middle of the path, she looked up at him with painted eyes and said, I've been waiting for you, Christian. I don't know you, he said, walking toward her quickly, unabated, letting his eyes fall to his feet. But you can, she purred. My name is Wanton, and I have prepared my bed with flower petals, perfumes, and fine linens of Egypt. Come and lie with me a while. Rest your weary body before you reach the gate. There's nothing but more drudgery beyond it. She piled her hair atop her head, then let it fall, cascading gently down so as to partially obscure her face. A series of thoughts passed through Christian's mind and spirit in the space of a second. The first was of his own wretched, filthy appearance, and, as Mr. Wiseman had so kindly pointed out, smell, and how this woman could certainly not be truly charmed by his present state, regardless of what she said. The second was of his wife, Christiana. He loved her more than words could adequately convey, and he felt sick at the very suggestion of betrayal. And then he thought of the Lord, who had already so graciously restored him after his bold and willful infidelity. He turned sideways and slipped around Wanton, supplanting her from the center of the way by the burden on his back. That should have gone the other way around, he said. What are you talking about, you vile man? She called out, spitefully. Christian didn't look back. I should have thought first of my lord, then of my wife, then of myself. It took hours for Faithful to reach the outskirts of Pliable's field. It was not so far, but he was unwilling to pass through the city itself, instead staying to the borders, moving through the tallest crops, the loneliest places, at one point he found himself on Obstinate's land and was nearly overcome with fear, darting stealthily from one hiding place to the next. Man to man, Obstinate was no threat at all to Faithful. He was nothing, 
bluster, hot air. But a mere day after trying to fetch Christian back by words alone, he had easily commanded a crowd of murderous men. Faithful had no desire to find out how this bloodlust might escalate on a third day, nor did he wish to find himself the subject of an ad hoc posse comitatus, with the single-minded, unyielding, and self-assured obstinate as its leader. As luck or providence would have it, though, he made his way, safe and unseen, to the far edge of Pliable's land. He took a moment to wonder whether the little man was yet alive to work it, and whispered a prayer for him if he was. Faithful looked out at the plain beyond, and simultaneously felt a surge of triumph at having finally arrived, and a sinking sense of deflation as he realized he had no earthly idea where to go from here. Apparently, Christian had left from here, and so he must go out, further from the city, to be sure, but in which direction? The uncertainty weighed heavy as if it resided inside his burden, but even deeper than that was a growing certainty that the old man with the glowing face was closing in on him, tracking him, preparing to overtake him. The bright outlook of the morning had proven fleeting. Faithful did not know why, but he was sure he hadn't seen the last of that frightful man. Feeling quite exposed, standing out in the open, Faithful did his best to put the center of the city directly at his back and set out in the opposite direction. He hadn't quite reached the middle of the plain when a man came into view ahead, moving quickly toward him. Faithful reflexively reached for his sword but found only the empty scabbard. His heart began clanging the alarm but then let off as the man drew close enough to identify. Evangelist? Good day, my friend! I'm so pleased you decided to... Whoa! Faithful grabbed him up in a bear hug, taking his feet six inches off the ground. You have no idea how glad I am to see a friendly face. He set the smaller man down and glanced back toward Pliable's land. Are you headed back there, to the city? Well, I came in part to check on you, my friend, and so, in a sense, you are my destination. Let us walk together for a while. But you just came from that direction. You don't mind covering the same ground again? I cannot imagine I'll ever tire of accompanying pilgrims down this road. Let's go. Faithful picked up his pace, again glancing behind him. Why do you keep looking back toward the town of your birth? Have you not set your hand to the plow and your face to the celestial city? Without a doubt I have. I look back not out of longing for that doomed place, but out of concern that an enigmatic enemy of mine could at any moment overtake me. You're not talking about obstinate. <laughs> no, with or without my sword, I worry not about obstinate, unless he has a rowdy mob at his back. I am speaking of a man who came to my home last night and threatened to burn it down with me inside. Ah, and had you ever met this man before? At first I thought him a stranger, but the more I think about it, the more I'm inclined to believe that I've seen him and his glowing face skulking in the shadows my entire life. I've seen him and feared him, and while I did acquiesce to his demands last night, I still feel him on my tail now. This may be hard to hear, Faithful, but that man was doing the will of the king, our king. Can I assume that when he knocked on your door, you had determined to stay in the city, come what may? Faithful hesitated. I had. And this man's approach, as unpleasant as it might have been, finally brought you to the Pilgrim Road. Well, in that case, I guess I'm worrying in vain. Perhaps not. 
Having hounded you your entire life and having chased you out from your home, this man may now consider you his own. If you see him again, be on alert, even beyond the wicket gate. The wicket gate? Evangelist came to a stop. Oh, that's right, I've yet to set you on your course. He laid a hand on Faithful's shoulder and pointed off into the distance. Tell me, Faithful, do you see yonder wicket gate? Faithful squinted toward the horizon. I... I think maybe... or or not. Hmm. Do you see the shining light? Between the woman wanton and the gate itself, Christian encountered no one. He kept his eyes fixed on the ground three feet ahead of him, unwilling so much as to glance off to either side, until he nearly walked into the gate itself. Coming to a sudden stop, and to his senses, he took a dozen steps back to get his bearings. Before him, an enormous stone wall as tall as ten men stretched out in either direction as far as he could see. To his right, it seemed to disappear into infinity. Off to his left, perhaps a mile away, the wall curved back a bit toward the forest, and there, taller by half than the wall itself, an enormous fortress surrounded a massive gateway yawning wide open. Two round towers flanked the fortress, and a turret rose up from the one closest to Christian. Hanging above the gate and billowing above the towers were dozens of large, brightly colored flags. Even from this distance, he could make out men moving about behind the battlements of the towers, three men up in the turret, and scores of people pouring in through the gate and disappearing behind the wall. In stark contrast to all of this, directly in front of Christian was a simple wooden gate, wide enough only to admit one person at a time. Along its rounded top edge were carved the words, Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Christian took a deep breath, stepped up to the entrance, and knocked twice. At first there was no response, and so Christian called out, Please open up! I come not as a worthy guest of the king, rather as an undeserving rebel. But if you will let me in, I will never stop singing his praise or serving his cause. After another uncertain moment, the gate creaked open about a foot, and a very grave-looking man peered out at him. Who are you? the man asked. And where do you come from, and what do you want? My name is Christian. I am a poor, burdened sinner. I come from the City of Destruction, and I am on pilgrimage to Mount Zion, in order to escape the wrath to come, and to love and serve the king of that place all my days, to glorify him and enjoy him forever. A good man, who also serves the king, sent me to this very gate and assured me it was the only way in. So, if you are willing... The man's face broke into a wide smile, which seemed to erase twenty years. I am willing with all my heart. He opened the gate the rest of the way. But before Christian could enter, the gatekeeper lunged at him, swinging a large, curved wooden shield from behind the gate. He knocked Christian to the ground and crouched beside him as two flaming arrows came roaring down from the turret in the distance and thudded into the shield. Standing quickly, the man grabbed Christian by his burden and bodily hauled him through the gate as another volley of four arrows narrowly missed them. Christian stood, trying to gather his nerves. What was that? I apologize for the rough handling, 
the gatekeeper said, drawing a short sword from his belt and knocking the now smoldering arrows from the shield. The strong castle in the distance belongs to Beelzebub, and his forces often fire arrows at pilgrims who approach this gate, hoping to kill them before they enter. He hung the shield on the wall and extended his hand. My name is Goodwill. Christian gripped the proffered hand and said, I am in your debt, Goodwill, for your protection and for letting me in. I rejoice and tremble. There was a moment there when I feared no one would answer. For you, Christian, an open door is set, which no man can shut. I gather that you are traveling alone? Not the wisest way to walk this road, if it can be helped. I am alone indeed. I tried to persuade my wife and children to join me, and there was another, Pliable was his name, who traveled with me for a very short time before turning back. But I am alone now. Turned back already? What caused him to abandon the pilgrimage before it had really begun? We both fell into the slough of despond, and it was too much for him. Goodwill shook his head sadly. This man, Pliable, holds the celestial glory in such low esteem that a few momentary troubles are not worth enduring? If I'm being honest, said Christian, the only real difference between Pliable and myself is that he turned back in the direction of his own house, while I turned away just a short time later toward the hill morality, persuaded by the carnal arguments of a Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And if evangelists had not happened upon me there, I might have wound up even worse off than Pliable. It seems that I'm more fit to be buried under that mountain than to enter through this gate. And yet, here you are, Goodwill said. And here we do not weigh the past mistakes of those who knock. In fact, those who come here will never be cast out. Now, come with me, and I will give you your instructions. He handed Christian a skin of water, which he slurped down with no regard for his manners, and led him a few dozen paces beyond the gate. You see the narrow way, of course, he said. Yes, and much more clearly defined than the way leading up to the gate. This is the way you must go. It was paved by the patriarchs, the prophets, by Christ himself and his apostles. To deviate from it would be the height of foolishness. But beware, there are many wide and crooked roads that butt up to this one. Stay on the straight and narrow way. Christian noticed that while the gate was now behind him, the shining light was still far beyond, in the distance. What is that light? he asked. Goodwill chuckled. Why, it's the celestial city itself. You can see it from most stretches of the way, but there will be times when you find it obscured by something or other. Do not be discouraged. Keep moving along the narrow way. I will, Christian said. But before I leave, I wonder if... You... Yes? Well, I've just been carrying this burden for so long, and it grows heavier and bulkier, and I know I could make better time along this road if you could just remove it for me. I'm afraid that's beyond my abilities. Be content to bear your burden a while longer until you come to the place of deliverance. There, it will simply fall from your back. But first, you have one more stop to make. The interpreter's house is less than an hour's walk from here, situated on the right side of the path. When you arrive there, once again you need only knock, and you will be shown some wonders. Christian's spirit felt lighter, having passed the first milestone in his journey, and he made good time to the front gate of a pleasant Tudor-style country house, where he followed Goodwill's instructions and clacked the knocker a few times. 
When no one answered, he knocked again and yet again before someone finally called from behind the door, Who's there? I am a traveler who was instructed by a friend of yours, or a friend of the master of the house, to call on you. The door swung open, and an old man with long salt-and-pepper hair stood between the lintels. His pants were a bit too short and his jacket threadbare. He looked long and hard at Christian before saying, I suppose you are here to see the wonders. That's what I'm told. Come in, then. I am the interpreter, and I will show you things mysterious and things profitable. He beckoned Christian further in and said, Deacon, would you be so kind as to light some candles? Only then did Christian notice an even thinner, very pale young man standing off to the side of the foyer. This is my man, Deacon, my servant, but also my dearest friend. I love him like a son. Oh, thank you, Deacon. When they each had a light in hand, the interpreter led the way through a doorway, down a narrow hall, and into an expansive parlor. Around the room, inviting upholstered chairs and an ornate gate-leg table painted a picture of some wealth and sophistication, as did the oak wainscoting on the walls. But the floor was absolutely covered with dust. Not a sheet of dust, not even a thick layer of dust, rather piles and piles of it, hiding their feet entirely as they walked into the room. Christian felt his mouth drying up and his throat growing scratchy. The interpreter asked, when do you suppose this room was last swept? I can't imagine, Christian said. It has been many, many years. Good, uh, good thing your servant is like a son to you, or he'd be out on his ear, no? Both Deacon and the interpreter stared back at him. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. Actually, you may have the right idea. Deacon, fetch the broom. The young man left the room for a moment and returned with a whisk broom. He shut the door behind him and began to sweep vigorously. Christian's eyes clamped shut as the air in the room filled with swirling particles. He began to choke and cough. He felt a pressing need to leave this place, but the air was so thick with dust that he could not find his way back to the door. Putting a hand to the wall, he began moving in what he thought to be the right direction, only to find himself in a corner where he doubled over, hacking violently, and fell to his knees. The air was unbreathable here. Christian tried to pull his shirt up over his nose and mouth to at least filter some of the particles out, but the cords of his burden, even tighter now than when he'd arrived, made that impossible. Involuntary tears streaked his cheeks and spittle gathered on his chin as he continued to cough and hack. Somehow he managed in the middle of his gagging to shout the words, Stop! Please stop it! The churning dust began to thin immediately, settling slowly to the floor. It took a few minutes before Christian, rubbing his encrusted eyes, could see the two men standing against the far wall, again just staring at him. Their clothes and faces were covered in dust. Christian stood and tried to wipe his own clothes clean, but the dust ground into the other grime, mud, and dirt, leaving them all the filthier. The interpreter and deacon gave themselves a quick shake, and all the dust seemed to slough off of them, falling back to the floor where the sum of it was even taller now, having been unsettled by the sweeping. The elder man opened another door behind him and shouted into it, It's time to fetch the water. 
A few minutes later, a young woman entered, carrying a bucket. Starting in the far corner of the room, she began sprinkling water on the dust until she had wet down all of it. Taking the broom from Deacon, she swept the floor clean and, with the help of her two companions, gathered up the wetted dust into the bucket, where it seemed almost impossibly small, considering that it had filled the entire room a short time before. The interpreter looked at Christian expectantly and said, Do you understand? I... Am I even in the right place? The interpreter rolled his eyes. You are indeed, good Christian. Now, seeing, understand. This parlor is the heart of a man never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is his original sin and all his inward corruptions which have entirely defiled him. As young deacon began to sweep, he was for us a perfect picture of the law. He could not cleanse the room. And the more he tried, the more we were choked by all the sin stirred up. In fact, it revived and strengthened the sin. Although the law uncovers and forbids it, it has no power in itself to remove it. This young damsel is the gospel. She immediately subdued the sin, vanquished it, and removed it, leaving the soul clean through faith, and as a result, leaving the room fit for the king of glory to inhabit. Christian digested this for a minute. Yes, I do understand, he said, and his burden loosened a bit. Faithful noticed the sign right away. Slough ahead, mind the steps, it warned. When they'd parted, a half an hour earlier, Evangelist had warned him to keep alert and sober-minded, as there were, in his words, many potential pitfalls and many hidden dangers ahead. This one seemed rather obvious, though. In addition to the prominent warning sign, there was the sensation of his feet beginning to sink a bit with each step. Next to the swamp itself was a marker, identifying it as the Slough of Despond. Faithful gazed into the bubbling muck and noticed the steps placed every two or three feet from this side of the swamp to the other. The sun shined straight down into the slough, even cutting into the thick, murky gunk, and he could see that the stone steps went all the way down, ostensibly to the bedrock beneath. He placed his foot carefully on the first step and immediately felt it slip along a thin layer of slime. He did a panicked, flailing dance to regain his balance, somehow remaining upright. He stood there awkwardly on the first step, the burden seemingly working against him, always pulling in the worst direction in any given moment. Another step sent Faithful sprawling forward. He stumbled to the next step, then the next, using his forward momentum, and before he knew it, he was closer to the far side of the slough, his eyes fixed on the shining light in the distance. Then he looked down and saw the silhouette of three long, eel-like creatures swimming in the muck beneath him, slowly circling the step on which he stood. His heart began to pound, and he turned his attention to the next step, which seemed further away than the last one had been. The downward pull of his burden seemed to be moving in a circular pattern, now drawn to one of the creatures below. Faithful stood immobilized by fear and indecision for a moment. Then he remembered Evangelist's parting words. There's a lovely group of widows I must check in on today, but remember this, Faithful, keep the light in your eye. Do not look to the left or the right, and whatever you do, don't fix your eyes on things below. Godspeed, my friend. 
Focusing again on the point of light in the distance, he took a blind step forward and felt solid rock beneath his feet. This he did a dozen more times, until he felt the squish of wet soil underfoot. He was beyond the slough, and a few more steps brought him to far drier ground. There, the path resumed, and Faithful pushed ahead. The interpreter led Christian into a small antechamber, containing only two benches and a large oil painting, a portrait of a grim-looking man. His eyes were gazing up to heaven. In his hands he held the best of books, and the law of truth was written upon his lips. He seemed to Christian like one pleading with men. He stepped closer and saw that, unlike any painting he'd seen before, this picture had depth, a third dimension. Behind the man, he could see the world at his back, and by tipping his head back and forth, he could see new angles, further in either direction. He began walking back and forth before the portrait, his eyes fixed upon it, then came to an abrupt halt when he noticed a golden crown hanging above the man's head, only visible from one particular vantage. He continued to study the painting from every angle for the space of a quarter hour. Finally, still gazing at the portrait, he asked the interpreter, What is the meaning of this? This man is able to unfold dark things to sinners. The world is behind him and his eyes are fixed on things above, for, compared to the love of his master's service, he despises carnal and earthly things. As a result, the crown of reward hangs over his head to be received in the world that is to come. But who is he? He is the only one our Lord has authorized to be your guide in hard and difficult places. As you go, you will encounter, indeed have already encountered, pretenders who claim to lead you in the right way, but a way that is only right in their eyes, which leads to death. Christian felt like he should answer, but had nothing to say. Come then, the interpreter said, to the bedchamber of two very different siblings. There is more for you to understand. Faithful wasted not a step that afternoon, and he was soon rewarded with a break from the sun as he passed beneath an arbor and was able to hug tight against a long, beautiful trellis covered entirely with fragrant flowers. His eyes were still fixed on the light, and to his great excitement he noticed the top of a tall stone wall at the horizon. This must be where he would find the wicket gate, he decided, pushing aside the soreness and creeping exhaustion and pushing himself ahead. Then, all at once, a woman stood blocking the path. She was very beautiful, voluptuous, and casting her eyes at Faithful with a smoldering desire. I've been waiting for you, Faithful. You, you have? Faithful took a few staggering steps toward her before his knees locked up. There was something amiss here. Yes, my name is Wanton, and I have prepared my bed with flower petals, perfumes, and fine linens of Egypt. Come and lie with me a while. Rest your weary body before you reach the gate. She closed the space between them. Are you not married? Faithful asked, intoxicated by her perfume and the softness of her every feature and movement. My husband is away, and he may never return. Besides, he is weak and delicate. I've been so lonely waiting for you. 
my strong, handsome blacksmith. Faithful's eyes traced her form from head to toe and back up again. Suddenly, for the first time in many days, the weight of his burden was entirely lifted. Deacon led the way up a staircase and, using a taper, lit a few small leaded lights affixed to the walls of the landing. Through here, the interpreter commanded, pointing to an ornate door. Entering in, Christian found himself in a small bedroom where two little children sat in wooden chairs. Christian was immediately reminded of his own children and felt a renewed stab of longing to have his family with him on this journey. Forcing his thoughts back to the matter at hand, he asked, Who are these? The eldest is Passion, and the other, Patience. Passion sat fidgeting, frustrated, his face turning red with discontent until he let out an angry yell and kicked his heels back against the chair. Patience was very quiet, sitting still, hands in her lap, happy and content. Why is Passion so upset? Christian asked. The governor of these children is making them wait until the first of the year for his best things. But Passion wants them now. The boy suddenly gripped the armrests of his chair, threw his head back, and shrieked at the top of his lungs. Christian covered his ears in pain. Between the two children, a man materialized, holding a cloth bag which he handed to Passion. The impudent child emptied its contents on the floor, treasures of all kinds. He laughed and laughed, mocking poor Patience and inspecting each jewel and coin. As he continued to scoff and mock, Christian saw him growing up into a young man, wasting his inheritance on parties, clothes, wine, women, and companions who only suffered Passion's unpleasant disposition because of the treasure at his disposal. But soon, he had spent it all and was left with nothing but rags on his back. I think I understand, Christian said. One of these children was willing to wait for next year, that is, the world to come, for her treasure, while the other insisted on having all the good things now, in this life. He thinks a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Indeed, the interpreter said. In his mind, that old proverb has more authority than all the divine testimonies of the world to come. Patience has the best wisdom, Christian said. Yes, for three reasons. First, she waits for the better portion. Second, she will have glory while her brother has only rags. And finally, the glory of the next world will never wear out or be fully spent as Passion's treasures have been. And yet he laughed to scorn at his sibling. But by and by, he came to understand that he did not have so much reason to laugh. Perhaps another proverb would be more appropriate for young Passion, the one about he who laughs last. In our Lord's kingdom, the first will be last, and the last will be first. So the lesson here, Christian said, is not to covet the things that are now, but to wait for things to come. Well said. The things that are now seen are temporary, but the things to come are eternal. And yet, because our fleshly appetites are such near neighbors to the things of this world, even while they are such strangers to the eternal things to come, they tend to fall in love with the former and remain cold and distant to the latter. I have experienced this, Christian said. Your warning is well received. I am happy to hear it. Now, follow me. The greatest wonders are yet ahead of us.
Something inside Faithful broke him from the spell, and he took a few more steps toward the wicket gate, but something else inside him was yet bewitched by the sight and scent of Wanton, and so he reached an internal accord, a compromise, and said, Walk with me, good lady. After all, what harm could there be in that? She stuck close by his side as they went along, continually dropping hints, which grew less and less subtle, about her intentions with him, and how she would have them spend the afternoon, the evening, and all of the night. They'd been traveling together for twenty minutes when she wrapped her hand around his bicep and tugged him aside, saying, My house is this way. Come with me now. Faithful could now see the wicket gate at the base of the wall, no more than a hundred yards away. Come, she said, again, more insistently. You will not regret it. Her feet go down to death, Faithful said. Her steps take hold on hell. What? I just remembered those words, ancient words, that I heard again and again as a boy. He yanked his arm free, his feet anchored to the narrow path. I will not defile myself with you. She pressed herself against his chest and purred, This road will be here tomorrow. The gate will be there tomorrow. I am here right now. Think of the journey, not the destination. Live in this moment. Don't be a fool. A fool is exactly what you'd have me be. Leave me, he commanded. The words were strong, but there was no conviction in them. Faithful clamped his eyes shut to avoid being further enchanted by her beauty and felt her lips against his neck. It's not as if you've never done this before. Just once more, before you walk through that gate, get it out of your system. He lashed out at her in desperation, meaning to shove her away and make his escape. But when he opened his eyes, he found his hands on her bare shoulders. She was gazing now into his soul with her heavily painted eyes, worming deeper and deeper into his desires. Faithful felt his resolve breaking. He was too weak to resist her. Pulling his hands back to his sides, he took two long steps back away from her and again closed his eyes, praying for deliverance. The gate was so close. No, he said, this time with conviction and constancy. That's when Wanton began to beat him with a strength he would never have anticipated. He went down to his knees as she rained blows down upon him, avoiding his burden and instead striking at his ribs, his neck, his arms, which he'd wrapped around his head to protect it. Who are you to reject me, you foul, wicked man? You will not deny your carnality. You cannot stand for long in the face of temptation. I will have you one way or the other. Faithful was praying for strength to resist, knowing that he could not endure this beating indefinitely. He was too weak, too feeble, too fallen. As he realized this, he was filled with a holy resolve and stood, eyes open, hands ready for battle. But Wanton was gone. Only the faint remnant of her smell hung in the air. What had a few minutes ago been the aroma of life itself now stunk worse than sulfur in Faithful's nostrils. Shaking off the pain and panic of the attack, Faithful ran with all his remaining strength until he found himself pounding his fist against the wicked gate. Thanks for listening. 
The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Additional music and sound effects licensed from Pond5.com. Find us on the web at www.highandsilver.com, on Twitter at PilgrimProgPod, and for more audio productions of my fiction, head over to www.zacharybartles.com audio. High and Silver. Good. <laughs>